You are listening to PG Radio, broadcasting from Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. Welcome to Psychoanal Literature, a podcast about psychoanalysis, literature, and all that lies in between. Each episode, we deliver an interview with a prominent cultural figure who brings psychoanalysis to bear in contemporary culture to find out why they think psychoanalysis matters today. I'm Dr. Yael Segalowitz. And I am Professor Angeline Maschilein. Join us. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast on psychoanalysis and literature. We're thrilled to have with us today the writer, poet, essayist, and scholar Maggie Nelson, whose work influenced us both. And among Nelson's many wonderful works are Jane and Murder from 2005, Luex 2009, The Art of Cruelty 2011, and the auto-theoretical The Argonauts from 2015. Hi, Maggie. Hi, glad to be here. We're thrilled to have you with us. So we'll open with the questions that the question that we pose to all of our guests as the first question. Why do you think psychoanalysis is back again? And why now? Part of me wonders in hearing these different accounts, whether, whether one can answer why psychoanalysis and why now without wondering if it's ever been gone, who says it's gone, what is it? You know, like lots of different questions, you know, and, and, and does it travel, um, whether it's, you know, whether it's called affect theory or whether it calls microaggression or whether it's called like, does it travel uh, under different names? Um, uh, and if so, you know, again, has it never been gone per se? I mean, I think that I definitely, like you, have had students tell me that it's over and kind of, laugh at being assigned certain psychoanalytic texts, but I also feel like um, that there's a kind of new naivete about psychoanalysis that I've, I've noticed now with students where they're not kind of bearing the pockmarks of some war about French theory or some war between feminists and Freud and Lacan, and, and, and they're just coming to all of it like, huh, interesting the death drive what's that you know like there, there's not a like they're just not carrying any kind of historical baggage with it that might have been attached to it so I don't I don't know if it's ever not been here but I think that there's a kind of um yeah kind of maybe an ahistorical openness to to it at present you know Wait, that's really interesting as we told you before also that we came to to our whole project um, from a sentence in your book the Argonauts where you say why Winnicott now and um, where you also say that you see Winnicott everywhere and that for you he is the most relevant of psychoanalytic authors can you say a little bit more about this and what where is that relevant situated is that in relation to the experience of motherhood or does it also have to do with writing um with literature with reading why winnicott now so when i was in graduate school 1998 to 2004 i guess i was in graduate school so um and and eve sedgwick was one of my teachers at cuny right uh, so I, t- I took a class with Eve called uh, Non-Edipal Models of Psychology. It was a class she taught fairly often. And, and it was a wild class that taught, you know, kind of began by, by looking at Ferenczi and Freud and asking kind of why did some, why did some psychoanalytic models 
win out <laughs> kind of at the inception of psychoanalysis over others. Um, and then it spread out to, you know, we read Klein and we read Winnicott and we read, um, uh, you know, a bunch of what she was calling, again, non-Oedipal models of psychology. And then it got, you know, very far out with reading. Um, you know, she was always, not always, but in her, you know, last decade of life was um, interested in uh, Tibetan Buddhism and interested in mind modeling from Buddhist traditions. And I think she was, um, you know, really curious about putting, I mean, she's written about that uh, a fair amount. So I think, so that class was really foundational for me. And I think it, it changed this idea that I'd gotten in college of what psychoanalysis was to this kind of more molten idea of like, what could it have been? And are we sure we know what it is? And, and putting together very uh, things that might seem unlike, but putting them under this rubric. And then also being alert to, um, to, to different structures um, that may have gotten short shrift in analytic thinking. So, so that class was very formative for me. I love the Winnicott that we read in the class. I probably loved it more than, than anything we read. Although we didn't really read. I mean, anyone who gets involved with re trying to read Winnicott will quickly find out that, and I wrote about this in the Argonauts, that um, you know, he, it's reading him is not like reading other analysts who have large, you know, you, you, you're reading like BBC, you know, broadcasts and you're reading, I mean, yes, there are a few books and papers, but it's not, but I was also attracted to that and thinking, um, you know, what is this, what, what, what are these forms of writing, you know, that he's doing and, and how do those, how do their non-mastery formats correspond to the feeling of permission and openness that he's talking about with play or with, um, you know, holding containers and things like that. Um, so that class was really formative for me and Eve was always on the lookout, whether it was in Sylvan Tompkins or in Winnicott, but for people whose models uh, did not take, um, that they had a kind of fungibility about whether about who could occupy the roles and the structures being described that they weren't determined by gender because for Eve queerness meant it meant a phrase that she took from Tompkins actually any affect can attach to any object so the objects don't mean in of themselves but the, the you know the things so you know anal sex means one thing to you it means something different to somebody else and the, as we you know our, our sexualities also don't mean the same to, you know, they, they, they're not, they, things don't line up and that queerness for her were all the places where things didn't necessarily line up because they were fungible, right? So I think, so she was very attracted in Winnicott to the fact that, um, that, the, that, the, that the idea of the good enough mother, the holding container was not necessarily needed to be inhabited by a biological, you know, or cis female mother. And they think that that's one of the reasons why, um, um, at least as it was presented to me, you know, why she found so much permission there. Um, so that's one, that's one why Winnicott now. I mean, there's a whole other kind of subject that seems much larger to me and that I've written on more extensively in a book that's coming out in September. There's a chapter on the climate in the, in the book, and I'm, I'm not the first person to write about this, but the way that people's feelings about the climate feel unmanageable to them and that that unmanageability or the, the gaps between what we know and what we feel empowered to do create um, paralysis and inaction and pain um, and a kind of unaddressed grieving for what is going on, you know, in a planetary level. And I think that there are a lot of questions that people have when they're when they're noticing the relationship between, you know, emotional or affective states and political life and trying to find people who've talked about that 
um, in a way that feels helpful, you know, fruitful, generative to them. I think that there's a hunger for that. Um, and I think that that's reflected in, in interest in psychoanalytic theories. Winnicott is writing in Britain in the 1960s, 1970s, the prominence of object relations. There is something about this contemporary moment in which in the U.S., you know, in mommy blogs, as you say, in, in Bechdel, in other thinkers, all of a sudden we have Winnicott and the good enough mother everywhere to be found. So you think that is linked to some kind of need for that theory or maybe some kind of intellectual openness or the other way around? In the United States, where we don't have... Uh, any social services really to speak of that are substantive. Um, the, um, I mean, you guys probably read Jacqueline Rose's book Mother on Mother, I mean, Mother's an essay on love and cruelty, which was so great. But I mean, I think that, that she's so brilliant on naming, um, you know, the way that mothers desire to, to, to have their children thrive into doing whatever they can to try and make that happen can be weaponized against them as, as making them the objects of sadism and ridicule and, and whatnot. And I think, I think that's very, and that that's reflected is her whole point in, in austerity politics and trying to continue to punish mothers by, by um, you know, withdrawing services. And, you know, this has just been, I mean, COVID has just been an extraordinary, you know, horror show, you know, of how that, of how that's played out in the United States with, with losing all child, I mean, losing all childcare, even in the, including in the form of school um, for months on end. I mean, it's just been, it's just been staggering. So anyway, there's, a, so I think there's a lot of stuff about good, the good enough from every facet. Do you think, um, Maggie, do you think that this, this kind of um, punishing attitudes towards mothers or, um, does this for you also originate within a very long tradition of psychoanalysis, which is, of course, also, as you say, a very edipal or a very patriarchal discipline in a sense. Um, but I think that there is also another sensitivity that, that psychoanalysis also fosters, a sensitivity to words, to a certain materiality and attention to detail. And or are these two opposing tendencies relevant to you? I mean, I think probably liberated by people like Sedgwick and stuff, I never really, and also having having come to psychoanalysis via feminist theory, like in the 80s and 90s, where I was being invited to read it critically, you know, I never really read it like, oh, I'm going to this book to hear how things are, you know, I read it in a literary fashion. I mean, we all know that Freud is a great read. Like we know that, you know, I read it in a critical fashion. I read it in a, you know, a lot, if you're a kind of feminist, you know, there's a, there's a lot to laugh at and think is funny, just hearing men talk. I mean, and a lot of it's just patently absurd, you know? Um, I mean, when I, would try at CalArts to teach things about like castration complex and stuff or penis envy. My students would, they would just, they would laugh so hard. I mean, they would just really laugh it out of the room, you know, writing that's telling you about the human condition and like people are like this and, you know, women feel like this, you know, and that's bossy. People react to very strongly. They say, no, it's not. This is ridiculous. I don't believe this. If, if you can just kind of get to a point where you don't, feel like you have to be reactive to somebody telling you these truths because you don't have to take them as truths. I just, the whole reading experience of, of psychoanalysis really lightens up. It seemed to me, which is something that I really loved all through your work, um, that you seem to argue not so much with 
Freud himself, but with the way that his theory has been concealed in the American, you know, imaginary. I love the way that you think of his work as like playful in the end. Or even yeah, I mean, I think it is. I don't know that Freud, you know, whether or not he himself had that much of a sense of humor about his theories is, you know, people will say to me all the time, oh, I don't read Freud because I don't believe that I want to, you know, kill my father and sleep with my mother. I don't, I don't, I don't feel that way. So why should, you know, why, if that's what somebody thinks is foundational structure of the human condition, why should I read that, you know, and, and that makes sense to me, you know, I think, you know, to me, especially having a child, but also having a gender complex household, as is every household. But, you know, I, you know, I do believe there are, there are such a things as, you know, the, a family romance. And again, that the family romance, uh, it might not be constitutive, but it's certainly an interesting lens by which to look at systems in a family, you know, and that if you believe like Tompkins and Sedgwick, that any affect can attach to any object, then that doesn't mean that um, different things can structure the family romance than, say, this imago of a phallus, or a phallus can mean different things, or, you know, different things can happen. It's the congealment of the idea that they, that their analysis is, is a gospel truth that I think is, is the, what has been the problem, you know. Is it even a relevant or interesting choice today to engage with the literary text through a psychoanalytic lens? Is there anything that we can gain from it? Is there anything that you feel that you gain from it, that your students do? And I'm talking about psychoanalysis writ large, as you said, you know, not only Freud and Lacan, but clearly Bion and Winnicott and Klein, and even Sedgwick, you know, in her work on psychoanalysis. What does it give us, if yeah. at all? Well, I definitely think it has value. <laughs> I would definitely spend time doing it. I can't think of, I can't think of, I, I, it seems like a great way to spend aspects of a life to me. You guys probably know this Shoshana Feldman essay, Literature and Psychoanalysis, right? Like, well, when I read that essay in graduate school, no, I read it, I'm sorry, as an undergraduate. Um, it totally blew my mind. And um, so I wrote my undergraduate thesis when I was a baby, you know, like, whatever, like 20. So I'm not like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like proud of it per se, but I did it, but it, but it's, it, it was about Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath, and it was about the notion of confession, and it was about the treatment of female confessional poets in the 50s, right? So the two books that were really, besides like Foucault and the Confessing Society and stuff, the, the two books that really blew my mind when I was working on that project when I was very young, you know, again, 20, but were Jacqueline Rose's book, uh, The Haunting of Sylvia Plath, and then Fafelman's essay, you know, On the Turn of the Screw. They totally, they just totally, they, they, they totally changed my um, orientation to thinking about writing about literature and art and I, I still to this day try and teach my students and myself how to read as Feldman would have it you know in a relation of transference uh, rather than interpretation and I, I think it's like to me like totally key um, so I think that to the question of what's the value of literature and psychoanalysis, I would say that like the relationship of interpretation is, is a little moribund to me. But if you can teach yourself to ask the kind of questions like, not, not, not in the um, self-psychoanalytic way of like, what happened in my past that's making me react to this text like this? Like, do I not like reading about grandparents because I hate my grandmother? Not like that, but saying like, <laughs> I'm feeling these feelings from this text, you know, it's created them because it's literature. So it's doing something to me. 
Um, and my job as a critic is to like get really good at being like, okay, I'm standing in front of this painting. Here are all the things I'm thinking and feeling. What, what, what's going on between me and the painting and how can I get that down? And there's another book I really love. I don't know if you guys know this book. It's called The Sight of Death by TJ Clark. Do you know this book? It's really cool. No. Yeah, no. but like he goes to see these two um, Hussein paintings every day at the Getty for a year and writes about them. And I just feel I teach it a lot because I think it's, yeah, just that like every day he shows up and just says, what's going on between me and this painting today? Mm -hmm. You know, what do I see today? You know, and I just, it's just kind of a core of, of how I approach writing about literature and art. You know? And I just wanted to piggyback one more quick questions about that. Do you think there are specific works like Plath and Sexton that really invite you know, a psychoanalytic or as you said, you know, transference or acting out kind of reading or is it every object and every affect if we go back to Sedgwick? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're Plath and you're going to say every woman adores a fascist, a boot in the face of the brute, brute heart of a daddy like you. Yeah. I mean, you know, like it's fascinating how with each interviewee, there's a different atmosphere in the room. With Nelson, there was lots of laughter and a flux of playfulness which, as the interview continued, was found to be contagious. You know, there's a lot of tonal things going on in that poem. Absolutely. You know, one of them is speaking the script of what some, you know, I mean, she's both confessing and also parodying the script at the same time. I mean, the reason why I wrote about Plath and Sexton is they were, they were both very explicitly involved with their analysts and with their therapists and in Plath's case, in both of their cases with their treatment. So a lot of their writing was in response to their treatment and a lot of their writing was experimenting with what is their reader their confessor? <laughs> is their reader the therapist? I mean, Sexton herself had a lot of poems called like to my analyst, you know, <laughs> it was a very like direct kind of dialogue. But what I was interested in them was not them as patients, it was in what they were doing all of the canny dances that they were doing um, to deflect, like knowing that they were the object of all of this pathological attention, you know, and how did they contend with that? I mean, and Rose's book on Plath is so good about on, on that, like the whole book is just so good on that, which is that she's, the haunting of Sylvia Plath is, is both, obviously it's a double meaning of the haunting of Plath herself, but the haunting of Plath in the culture and Rose sets out to read, why is the culture ha so haunted by Sylvia Plath? You know, what does she do or tell us about our culture? That is really, you know, and she did, she, this, it's the same question about mothers in, in her book on mothers. So I, 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 that's the kind of transference, like reading, like what is, what is this writer telling us about the culture? This, I mean, you know, you, you guys know all this, you're in cultural studies and psychoanalysis, you know. Yeah, and I think that this way we, we get back to this, why is this culture so haunted by psychoanalysis and, and why all these things that, that may or may not die or are proclaimed death and then return. I mean, there is this sort of haunting and I think that, that this is also the way that, that culture works, that it haunts. Okay, so I don't know about you guys, but to me, my students, the main reason why they tell me that psychoanalysis is dead as they tell me and you've heard this a million times that you know neuro neurologists and neurobiology have have remapped the mm -hmm. mind it doesn't have an ego and an id it doesn't have an unconscious it has neuronal pathways it has synapses it can be controlled by certain psychiatric drugs blah 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 
But, you know, they all, as we know, they're all subscribing to a vision of the mind and what it is and how it works that we will be talking about in 50 years as not what we believe about the mind. We know that mm -hmm. already, right? We just know it. <laughs> not to say that discoveries about the brain aren't real. We just won't hold on to them as if they are because that's just not how knowledge works, right? Like we will move on. So, you know, no one ever said that I read, you know, here is where the unconscious is, you know, like it, no one ever said that, right? And, and therefore you can't really replace a body of knowledge that wasn't, I mean, yes, Freud wanted it to be scientized. And yes, there are people who've been trying to find the gay gene and all the rest of these things people do. But, you know, to me, like, imaginative mind modeling will could never die because we don't we're never going to solve mm -hmm. the mystery of consciousness we can't you know how could we and why would we want to <laughs> you know? um maybe one concluding question do you think there's something about not the content but the form of psychoanalytic writing that speaks to you you know their tone the sensitivity the use of figurative language any of this so I couldn't really generalize, you know, say you're going to interview, you know, Adam Phillips, like if, if you're writing all the time as he is about how to stay curious, how to unknow, how to um, use psychoanalysis to lead you into less knowing, well, then your writing is really going to have to convey that your commitment to that, right? And so like as a writer, if you're showing drafts to somebody you know, they're going to say to me, okay, you're saying you want X, Y, or Z, but your writing is snarky and you're really seeming pissed off while you're arguing for being happy and like, what's going on here? You know, so part of editing one's own writing is trying to figure out what's going on in here. <laughs> you know, And that's why Sedgwick, I mean, I would say that the main essay that I think never has died and I just, it comes up in student paper after paper is paranoid and reparative reading, you know, I just think that, well, two things. I think people are exhausted with paranoid reading. They don't know what comes next. They're trying to replace it with the reparative and kind of marry the psychoanalytic notion of the reparative, like from Klein and from queer theory with a kind of um, political idea of reparation and redress and accountability. I don't think it's a easy match. And I think that there's some of the problems have come from thinking it is an easy match <laughs> like repar like reparation here is the same as reparation there I don't I don't think it I don't think it's really the same um, but I will say that um, you know a lot of people like Heather Love you may have written you know read has written about like Cedric is really paranoid you know and I you know Cedric was my teacher like I, I saw all those different parts of her and 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 you know, to me, it's not like I am trying as a writer to like purge anything out of my work. You just want to get as, you know, you just want to work on it long enough that you feel the most sure that it's doing the work you hope it's doing and not doing all these unconscious things <laughs> that are like under doing. I think Sedgwick was fine. With, and she said, the paranoid and the reparative are like a braid. You can't like separate them apart. And I've, and, 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 and I think that's why she was fine with that braid being mm -hmm. present in her own writing, you know. Thank you so much, Maggie. It's been wonderful, really. Yeah. Thanks for joining us this episode on Psychoanalytic Literature. Make sure to subscribe to the show in Spotify, Radio Public, or any of your favorite apps. Thank you to Buzi Raviv for editing this podcast and to Ben Gurion University for making it happen. Tune in next time for another thrilling interview. Thank you for listening. Bye bye. Tot de volgende keer. Until next time. <laughs>